as we come before you now, we do trust that you are our hiding place in the midst of difficult times. Father, we do trust that you are our refuge and our strength. Father, as the psalmist says, you are a mighty fortress in which we run into in the midst of our fears and attack. And in you we find rest and protection. Father, this morning we pray that you would give us a very large vision of you and your glory that would help sustain us through our difficulties, and that, Father, would also provoke us to give us, give you, rather, better the worship of our lives and service to you and love for you and obedience to you. Father, we pray that you would do all this through the power of your word as your spirit applies it to our minds and our hearts. And we ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Thanks, sir. I get to take what's left with me when I go? Do I have to leave? Okay, all right. <laughs> okay, all right. Ephesians chapter 1. You know, before any trip, it's always wise to be prepared for the journey that's ahead of you. That might mean topping off your gas tank or packing up a lunch. It might be double-checking your reservations or picking up some tickets. Still yet, it might be getting directions or printing off a map to make sure you know where you're going. And this morning, we are beginning a new journey, as it were, during our time together on Sunday mornings in our our series. This week, we begin uh, a new journey of travel, seeking to better understand the unfolding plan of God in history. Specifically, we will begin to walk through every book of the Bible, better understanding how it contributes to our understanding of the larger story God is telling in history. But we're not taking... The scenic route, as it were. We're not looking at every tree. We're not experiencing every curve in the road. Rather, uh, what we're simply doing is going book by book uh, in chronological order of the story in which God is unfolding. Now, uh, what that means is that uh, unless the Lord has other plans, unfortunately, you won't get to hear the whole series. (laughs) Okay? Uh, We are praying for Pastor Gene's recovery and for him resuming his responsibilities in the pulpit. And so you will hear uh, the beginning of this series, and should you have the desire to finish hearing it, uh, you can know that uh, all of the sermons uh, that, that we record at our church are posted on our website and are available for download for free. And, uh, but in the meantime, uh, we, we want to begin this journey together. And we want to do so so that we can understand uh, any time we open the Bible, any book of the Bible, any passage, any verse, we want to be able to have this large framework so that we will immediately know where we're at in the course of God's story. We will know how to interpret what we're reading, and not just to know how it fits in the Bible, but how it specifically applies to our lives as those still in God's story. God's story is not finished. It began a couple thousand years ago, and it will finish the day that Christ returns and brings all things together, ushers in the new creation, and eternity for us will begin. And so as we look to God's story, we understand it's our story. And that's the reason why it is so important for us to to look at it and to seek to understand it. And this morning, as it were, we want to get our bearings. We want, as it were, to receive our directions, our map. We want to look at some signposts that will kind of frame the story that we're going to look at over the next several weeks. 
What we want to do is, is, is begin and by seeing that what is unfolding in God's story is not some haphazard, pieced-together tale with an ending that is uncertain or without meaning. Instead, what, we'll, what we will see is a gracious and glorious story that God has been planning from the beginning and is ensuring is running according to that plan by His sovereign good will. So in order to do this, let's look to Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 7 through 12, but in order to get the context, I would like to read verses 3 through 14. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. May God bless the reading of His word. Paul is writing here in chapter 1 to give praise to God for the gracious salvation he has given to sinners. A salvation that has not come to them because they have worked for it, because they have earned it, but simply by his merciful and gracious hand. And frankly, that's what we spent the last 12 weeks looking at. Uh, those verses are a summary of all that we have been looking at in terms of uh, our previous series on the God who saves. But we need to understand that Paul sets that salvation in the larger context of what God is doing in the world, what God is setting about to do according to His plan for the fullness of time. A plan that began in creation, moves on through redemption, and will ultimately be fulfilled in the recreation of the world apart from sin. And it's in that larger context that we want to look at this morning. We want to get a glimpse of what the plan of God is like because, again, we are a part of the fulfillment of that plan. Not just as Christians, but as part of this created order, we are part of the outworking of God's plan. So we want to see how it begins and how it ends. We want to trace out the storyline of the Bible. And we need to make sure that we don't see this as some kind of abstract exercise. Again, this is not an academic pursuit. This is not, let's just know the Bible better. No, this is knowing God's story because it is our story. So this morning we want to lay out some, some guideposts, as it were, to help prepare us for what we're going to see in God's Word. The first thing that we're going to see is a plan that is revealed in the Word of God. All things are working together according to God's plan, according to plan. And that plan is one that is revealed in the Word of God. Paul says, In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His, gra of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. Paul says that God has made known to His people and to the world 
the mystery of His will. How has He done this? He's done this by His Word. His Word that was spoken through prophets and apostles and was written down for our sakes. And it's important that we understand this. God could have acted in history without speaking. God could have acted in history, He could have acted redemptively and never said anything about it. He could have created the universe, He could have saved Israel from Egypt, He could have sent Christ to be the Messiah, and never spoken a word about anything of it, never revealed to us the mystery of His will. His will. But what good would that have done? Not much. Not much. Why? Because we wouldn't have understood what was going on. We have no idea why he was doing these things. We may not even know that it was he who was doing it. You see, what we, what, what we see is that God is always acting in conjunction with the revelation of himself that he has given. He acts and he speaks together. After all, what good is it that God would send Christ if we were never told why he sent Christ? What was being accomplished on the cross? Why exactly he was doing this? It wouldn't make any difference to us. We wouldn't know. We wouldn't be able to exercise faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. This is an important concept to grasp. God's perfect word comes in conjunction with his mighty saving acts. So when God redeemed Israel from Egypt, he sends Moses ahead to both tell Israel and to tell Pharaoh exactly what is happening. He says, this is what the Lord God wants you to do, release His people, and if you don't do it, this is exactly what He's going to do, and this is why He's going to do it. God acted to redeem Israel, and He explained why He was doing what He was doing. Now, the primary implication of this should be obvious. If God has revealed to us the mystery of His will, His glorious and gracious plan from creation to recreation, if He has revealed this to us in His Word over thousands of years, then we should read the Word, shouldn't we? We should be immersing ourselves in the revelation of God to us through His written Word. And part of the aim, frankly, of this series is to help us see and understand the reality of Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. There is a real spiritual benefit that comes to us when we read God's Word, because we are understanding who He is, what He has done for us, and how we are to live in light of that. As Christians, we will often say, along with Paul, that we believe the Bible is God's Word, but how often do we simply ignore it? How often do we go through the week and it stays laying there collecting dust on the coffee table or in the back of our car? Never to be open, never to be benefited from, never for us to go and to, to gain some new insight into the glory and the majesty of God from His Word. Sometimes we only read our favorite parts and we ignore the, thing, the bits that we think are boring. How many of you have ever tried to do the, the, the Bible in a year reading plan and you stalled out when you got to Leviticus? And you just scratch your head and say, what possible relevance does this have for my life? I give up. And we've not gone on. But, but what did Paul say? All Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It is His Word, and all of it is profitable to us. All of it is for our spiritual benefit. Even those long genealogies, and you scratch your head and say, what in the world? Well, what benefit? Paul has said, all Scripture. All scripture, none of it's wasted. You imagine there's something like there's something like five thousand years of human history condensed down into our Bible. That's an amazing economy of words. 
I mean, people write history books, entire series, volumes of series on, on the few years that were our Civil War. And we just have this one book that covers all of human history. There is not one word wasted from God's lips in there. All of it is vital and essential and beneficial to us knowing who He is and allowing us to worship Him better. God tells us that in giving His story, in presenting to us how His story unfolds, that our lives compose one small red thread that runs through the larger tapestry that God is weaving together across history. Therefore, again, as we read God's story, it's our story. The author of Hebrews says, Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God says that He spoke to His people throughout time in various ways. He spoke directly to the patriarchs. He gave His law through Moses. He spoke and performed signs through the prophets. And Hebrews says all of these various ways of speaking, of revealing Himself, of presenting the mystery of His will, of, of, of fulfilling the plan for His people, all those things came together when He spoke definitively and finally through His Son Christ. God supremely revealed Himself in the mystery of His will through the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ. And what you will find, and what I hope to show you over and over and over again, is that God's Word is ultimately a book about Jesus. God's Word is ultimately a book about Jesus. From the very beginning to the very end, it is either pointing forward to, holding up, or explaining who Jesus is and what He has done in bringing to fulfillment all that God has done desired to do in his story. And ultimately, that shouldn't surprise us. That shouldn't surprise us because just as the Bible is focused on Jesus, that's a, that's a reflection that God's plan itself is focused on Christ. And ultimately, that is our second signpost we want to see this morning, and that is that the plan that is being worked out according to God's will is a plan that is focused on the Son of God. It's a plan that's revealed in the Word of God. And secondly, it's a plan that is focused on the Son of God. You know, right now in the field of, of science, the much sought-after Holy Grail is a unified field theory, or in layman's terms, they call it a theory of everything. The theory of everything. And what this is, this is a theory that would be a, a mathematical formula that would link together and explain the physical relationship of every single thing in the universe. And so, uh, one of, so that means how does, how does the, the constellation several hundred thousand light years away, how does that relate to a, a newborn baby on one small little uh, flea-speck planet in the Milky Way galaxy? The theory of everything would explain that. How all of these things work together, how they, how they relate, their beginning, and where ultimately things are going. You know, it's, uh, it, it's pretty sad to be an evolutionist these days. Things start with a big bang, and guess what they're going to end? A big crunch. Uh, you know, that, that's not very hopeful for, for the outlook. And, and they're trying to find and understand how all these things put, are putting together. And men like the physically crippled but supremely genius Stephen Hawking are looking for this single formula that would, in their minds, provide ultimate meaning to life. It's not just a scientific endeavor. They're looking for this to find a larger, in some ways, spiritual understanding of who we are. And yet what the Bible says is that ultimately... 
the unifying theory of all things isn't something that can be scribbled on a blackboard. This isn't something that can be tested in labs or reduced to an equation. It's a person. The unifying theory of everything is a person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Paul says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of God's grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. And Paul says all of this is a mystery. Now, you have to understand, when Paul uses the word mystery, he's not using it like we think of it. We think of a mystery as, can't figure it out. Don't know what it means, right? It's an Agatha Christie book. I cannot figure out who, who the killer is. I've got to get to the end and figure it out. That's the mystery to us in our minds. But, and, and that, frankly, would have been how Paul's readers in Ephesus would have initially heard this because there were groups back then called the mystery religions. And these religions were such that it, you know, it's not like us where we say, look, here's everything we believe right here in a book. Read it, profit from it, enjoy it. You know, they would say, you start out down here. We give you a little bit. We just tell you a little bit about the world's about. We tell you a little bit about the gods, and you worship down there. And you're, you're here for a while, and, and your, your giving goes up, and your participation increases, and, okay, we're going to take it up to the next level. We're going to give you a little bit more information. And then that keeps going on and on and on. And, and the, the big picture reality stuff in the religion remains mysterious only to those who are at the very top. It's very much, frankly, like Scientology or, or Freemasonry today. And what Paul is saying is, look, the mystery element in Christianity is that something that was once not understood is now understood. It's the unknown now known. Christianity has no secrets. It's just the full and final revelation of God in Christ, and now we publish it to everyone. We don't ever say, well, you come, you come and believe in Christ and we'll explain everything later. You don't need to know that right now. We don't do that, do we? And we shouldn't. Jesus said, when I whisper to you in, in, in private, you stand on the rooftops and proclaim. And Paul is saying what was, what was previously unknown was that God is working all things together to unite all things in His Son, Christ. Under the Old Covenant, this truth was obscured and unclear, but now in the New Covenant, it has been made known to us and is proclaimed to anyone who will listen. The purpose of God is to unite all things under the Lordship of Christ. And part of that includes bringing salvation to sinners. Paul says, in Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Christ is the one who, by His atoning death on the cross, appeased God's wrath against sin and secured salvation for all those who would look to Christ in faith. Christianity believes that salvation is not something we earn, it's not something we deserve, it's not something we ultimately work for or pay for. It is a gift that God provides by His grace through Jesus Christ alone. And the only way that we receive that is not by coming to church, it's not by putting money in the plate or in the, the little church box to reduce the debt, it's not, by, it's not by helping elderly people across the street, it's not by going on mission trips, it's one thing, and one, thing, one thing and one thing only. You look to Christ in faith. And you trust that on the cross, He bore God's wrath against your sin so that God can look at you and forgive you. And you say, God, I'm not trusting in myself. 
I'm not trusting anything else but Christ to make me right with you. Christianity says that's the only way that you are saved. It ultimately comes down to Christ, the Savior of the world. He is the one that unites sinners to a holy God. But more than that, we know from the rest of the Bible, it's not just humanity that's affected by sin. It's not just sinful, sinning people that are affected by sin. It is all of creation that has been affected by sin. You remember way back when, if you were here, we looked at Genesis chapter 3, the very first, the very first sermon we did in that series of the God who saves. It was condemnation. What we saw was all of creation stands cursed by God because of our sinfulness. Our sin brought chaos and calamity into this world. And Paul says one day, Christ is going to end all that. Christ is going to come and He is going to fully reverse the effects of the fall. The final battle has been won on the cross and now one day He is going to return in power and glory and He is going to seal the deal as it were. He is going to bring to consummation all that He began with His incarnation. More than that though, He is going to unite all things in such a way that never again will there be any possibility of sin. So it's not just repairing the damage. He is going to seal up the dam, as it were, so that sin never becomes a reality. Not the tiniest drop of it will invade God's creation anymore. Instead, all of it will exist totally, perfectly, fully for the glory of God throughout the rest of eternity. That is what the focus of God's plan is. The uniting of all things to Him in Christ. And so over the next couple of weeks, if you're following along, Online, over the next year, as we trace through God's story given to us in the Bible, we see great events like the creation of the universe, the global flood of Noah, the call of Abraham, the long history of Israel, and the law. We will look over thousands of years of human history that took place before anyone ever uttered the name Yeshua Christus. And yet, what we see is that God's story is all about Jesus Christ. All of it finds its focus in Him, the Son of God. The third signpost that we want to see is that the plan that God is fulfilling according to His will is a, is a plan that is accomplished by the sovereignty of God. It's a plan that is accomplished by the sovereignty of God. Notice again what he says in verse 11. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. The salvation we have in Christ comes as part of the larger outworking of God's plan throughout history. And that plan is invincible. It's unstoppable. It's a plan that was conceived by God in ages past and is being carried out through the sovereign power and wisdom of God. And Paul says God is working out this plan, and in doing so, He is working to bring about all things according to the counsel of His will. And understand, when Paul says all things, it's not code for something else. All things is not code for some things. All things does not mean a couple of things. When Paul says all things, he means all things. Whether it's our economy and just a couple, a blink of an eye in the course of massive years of history and all of eternity. Whether it's the threat of terrorism. Whether it's, whether it's a, a tsunami that wipes out tens of thousands of people. Or whether it is the... The, the miraculous, in our eyes, miraculous, birth of a newborn baby. The joining together of two hearts and marriage that lasts for 60 years in faithfulness. Or whether it's sending Christ on the cross 
to die for the sins of the world, perfectly in fulfillment of God's plan. All of those things, all of those things, God is sovereignly bringing about according to His plan. We know this because God says that this plan was to unite all things in Christ, all things in heaven and things on earth. From every act and every scene to each spoken line in God's story, it has been planned from before time began, and He is bringing it about by His sovereign will. He hasn't consulted us on this plan, nor does He depend on us for this plan. Instead, this plan is worked out according to His wise and perfect counsel. And we don't just see this here in Ephesians 1, we see this throughout the entire Bible. Isaiah 45, God says, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Daniel 4. We read that the dominion of the Most High is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? In other words, God is in the heavens as the supreme ruler of all things. And none of us have the right to say, God, why did you let that happen? We are, as Jeremiah says, in Jeremiah 18, we are like clay in the hands of a potter. And if God decides to, to, to mold us into a cup, then we better be a cup. If God flattens us out into a plate, we better be a plate. And frankly, if God decides to smash it up into his ball and throw us in the trash, that's where we're going to be according to his sovereign will. Can you imagine people say, how could, how, could God, how could God let Hitler go? Well, you understand, Hitler was only here for a couple of years. Can you imagine if Hitler had gone on for decade after decade and the Nazi flag flew over every continent in the entire world? No, God stepped in and squished that little man and threw him, as it were, into the trash and said, that far and no farther. God is the sovereign ruler of all things. And by His good and sovereign hand, nothing can stop the fulfillment of His plan. Now as you read through the storyline of the Bible, you see things that remind us of, of people like Hitler. You see human frailty, you see human sin, you see natural disasters, the constant spiritual struggle between God's people and their enemies. And it's very tempting to either doubt God's control or His goodness in these things. And some will hear the, the language of the Bible that talks about God's supreme sovereignty all things, and, they, and they, want to, they think that reduces everything to some kind of cold, hard fatalism. That's not how the Bible proclaims the sovereignty of God. That, that's not the way it wants you to walk away thinking about God's sovereignty. Several decades ago, back in his day, B.B. Warfield was perhaps the greatest living Christian scholar in the world. He taught at Princeton Seminary back when it was still Christian, and his books are still considered essential reading even now a century later. And at one point in one of his writings, Warfield illustrated the difference between fatalism and a picture of the sovereignty of God in the Bible. He says, imagine a little Dutch boy whose home was on a dike in Holland near a great windmill. And this windmill was so large that its fan blades came dangerously close to the ground so that if anyone was not careful going by, their life was threatened. And yet this little Dutch boy loved to play next to this windmill. He loved the sound it made. He loved the breezes that would go by. And his parents feared for his life and tried to, to, to say very specifically, don't go and play near that windmill. 
But when the stubbornness of their son prevailed, they began to try and frighten him by describing for him the terror of being struck by the massive arms of the windmill and being carried up into the air and over and over again having the the life beat out of him as the endless strokes of the blades pummeled him. That would scare me away. But not this boy, according to this illustration. One day, heedless of all the warnings of the parents, the boy strayed under those dangerous arms and was soon absorbed in his playing. And as the air picked up and the blades began to turn more quickly, the boy was suddenly and violently smacked across his backside and swung up from the ground. His legs were in the air as his head dangled below, and he began to realize what his fate would be as more and more blows came crashing down across his backside. And then he twisted around in fear and horror and looked up, expecting to see the sky for the last time, and instead he saw his father's tearful face. And Warfield says this, at once the boy realized he was not caught in the mill but was only receiving the threatened punishment of his disobedience to his father. He melted into tears, not of pain, but of relief and joy. In that moment, he understood the difference between falling into the grinding power of a machine and into the loving hands of a father. That is the difference between fate and predestination. And all the language of men cannot tell the immensity of the difference. God is working out His sovereign and complete plan, but that sovereignty is being wielded by the hand of a perfectly wise and good and loving God who tells His people, call me Father, because I call you Son. And Jesus Himself shows us the application of this for our lives in Matthew 10. He's speaking of trusting in God's sovereign goodness. And He says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? But not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your heavenly Father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus says there is not, there's not a random bird in the sky that dies and falls to the ground unless the Heavenly Father has sovereignly decreed it. He says God is in such meticulous control of the world that He knows the numbers of hair in your head. And he says, therefore, don't fear about the future. Trust in God. Because if He cares even about the sparrows, know that He cares far more about you. The last signpost that we see for understanding God's story is that it is going according to plan, and that plan is fulfilled ultimately for the glory of God. It's a plan that is fulfilled for the glory of God. Notice what Paul says at the end of verse 12. In Him we have obtained an inheritance that is in Christ We have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Paul says those first disciples who were called to faith in Christ were saved to the praise of God's glory, but that's not all. Look at the rest of the chapter. That was was just verse 12. Look at verse 3. Blessed, or glory and praise, be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 5. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Everything God says that He is doing is to the praise of His own glorious name. As God's creation initially 
pure and without sin, and yet rebelling in sin, we have defamed God's glory. We have said God's not that good. The sin is better. The sin is better. And Paul says the entirety of our salvation has been done to reverse that. It's been done bringing us back to where we were before so we can see what He really is. We can see God for who He really is, the all-glorious God. More than that, Paul says that all God does is done for the glory of His name. I mean, you go through, you just you get a Bible that has a concordance in the back. Or better yet, if you get a Bible search program or if access to the Internet, you just, do, you just look up the word glory. And you, and you will find God saying all the time, all the time, I am doing this for the glory of my name. I am doing this that the nations might see my glory. I am doing this that you might behold my glory. I am doing this that all might be glorified in me. Now, we say amen, but some say, boy, God sounds like some old clucker going for compliments all the time. What's his problem? Why is he he so self-centered? Well, he's self-centered because, frankly, the universe is centered on God. And he realizes, unlike us, you know, if I try and get people to look at me as glorious, guess what? I'm not that glorious. I'm not much to behold. I'm not sure why you've, why you've put up with me all these weeks that I've been here. He's with a smile on your face. And I said, ah, get him out of here. Tired of looking at that ugly guy. But, but God, if he is truly perfect in beauty and in holiness and in love and in his sovereignty... If he, is, if he is perfect in all of his attributes, then he is the most glorious being in all the universe. He is the only one that can say, I am doing this for the glory of my name. He's the only one that it makes sense for. And he realizes that if he is the all-glorious being, then, then everything else is less glorious than him. And so when sin says, come, I am good for you, you will like it, you will find satisfaction. We, we, we believe the lie and we try it, and guess what? We're never satisfied. But God says, I'm better than sin. Come and find your fulfillment in me. Come find rest in me. Come find joy in me. And so God is actually loving and gracious by saying, come to me. Be glorified. Let me be glorified in your life because the more you're satisfying me, the more you want to go away from sin and the more God gets the glory. So this is why this is why it's a good thing that God says, I am doing this so I would be glorified. Because what it means is His people are ultimately going to be satisfied in Him. Everything else, the more God is glorified, the more everything else in the world looks cheap and empty compared to Him. And you may not know, but this is actually the testimony of the early church father, St. Augustine. When he was younger, he and his friends lived for themselves and their own pleasures. They were hedonists to the core. Sex and food and drink were the ordinances of the worship of their life. And Augustine went from philosophy to philosophy looking for joy and fulfillment, but he never found any. He never found any. And in the midst of the despair one day, he sat under a fig tree near his home, literally in tears. He was weeping so much, his friends said, you've got to go home. It's not, it's not right for a man to be crying in public like this. And so dejected even by his friends, Augustine is sitting under this fig tree and he's just weeping at the the gaping hole that is in his life. There's no joy. There's no joy. And in tears and desperation, he cried out to the God of his Christian mother for help. He said, what about you? What about you? Can you show me the way? And as he was praying, he heard a small child singing a song in Latin. Tole lege, tole lege. Take up and read. Take up and read was what the child was singing. 
And Augustine said he'd never heard this song before. He was not familiar with it. He'd not sung it as a, a nursery rhyme as a child. And so he believed it was God using this child. And so he immediately ran to his home, found his mother's Bible, and he did take up and read. And he heard the gospel, and God saved him. Later, Augustine would reflect on his conversion, and this is what he would write. How sweet, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. That's the kind of acknowledgement that God is seeking. That's the kind of acknowledgement that God deserves. And so Paul will write elsewhere in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that it might be repaid. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. These are the signposts of the story of the Bible. The story that is ultimately God's story. It's a story that He has ordained will occur according to His perfect and good will. It's a story that continues to this day until He unites all things in Christ, redeeming all of creation from sin to the glory of His name. This is why God created the universe. This is why He ordained history. This is why He sent His Son. And this is why you, sitting here today, exist. It's to forever see and savor and show the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The question for you this morning, though, is, do you embrace this calling on your life? Do you acknowledge that you are part of God's story and you have a part to play? You have a part to play in a big way or in a small way, finding joy in God and thus giving Him glory. This morning, if you're a Christian, I hope and I pray that you understand better your place in God's story. But perhaps you're here this morning and you... You you understand you're not in God's story. You've been trying religion and it's not working. And what you need to do is try Christ. You need to, to, to fly to Him and to trust in Him and in Him alone for forgiveness of sins. In just a minute, we're going to, to stand and to sing, and, I, and there's going to be someone down here waiting to receive you and counsel you. Trust in Christ and come and let someone tell you about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ that you may know forever where your eternity lies. Not in condemnation for your sins, but with forgiveness and life with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for you revealing your plan to us through your word. Father, we rejoice that you have showed us why you have done what you do and how you go about doing it. Father, we're thankful that we can trust in your good and sovereign will and know that all things are working together for good to those that love you and are called according to your purpose. Uh, Father, everything is moving ahead according to your plan, which you have set before the ages. A plan which will ultimately find its fullness in Christ. Father, help us take comfort in that and cause it, I pray, to move in our hearts in such a way that we will better understand who we are in relationship to you Help it to be so cemented in our minds and our hearts that it would cause us to see you as all glorious and give you the praise that is due you, both in word and in deed in our lives. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.